uh, this is one of those uh, situations where I, I had many passages that we could choose from as our scripture reading today, and I was like, well, let's just do all of them. So we're going to do all of them. Well, it doesn't hurt, does it, to do all of the scriptures? Um, so I invite you to turn to those three passages that are on the screen, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2, and then uh, Romans chapter 10. Acts 2, 42, 1 Peter 1, 13, and Romans chapter 10, verse 1. First reading will be in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And to set the context here, this is the beginning of the book of Acts, which describes the acts of the acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit and through the apostles. The Lord Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He's ascended into heaven, tells the Apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. And a lot of people focus on the, uh, the event of Pentecost, which is the phenomenon of the tongues of fire coming in, people speaking in foreign languages. But the emphasis of the entire chapter is often overlooked, and that's Peter's explanation of the event, where he preaches an entire sermon pointing to Jesus Christ as the true Messiah. And the crowd of people that were there in Jerusalem for this festival were cut to the heart, it says, and asking what they should do. And Peter says that you should repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then we have in verse 42 uh, a snapshot of what the early church looked like as a result of this Spirit's presence there in and among the people. So Acts 2.42, And they, the whole number of believers, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Main verse to draw your attention to would be verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Our next passage will be 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. And we'll go into chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, the apostle Peter writes... Prepare, preparing your minds for action, or if you see the footnote there, just to notice, the girding up your loins of your mind. Girding up the loins of your mind. 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot, spot, uh, blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For... All flesh is like grass, in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then lastly, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. This is the Apostle Paul. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, and here the them is, he's referring to his Jews, to Jews, to his kinsmen according to the flesh, he says at the beginning of chapter 9. So his heart and his desire for them, for unbelieving Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, 
bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, let's turn and ask for God's blessing upon his reading of his word. Indeed, Father, having heard these various passages of scripture, And what they would say to us this morning in so many ways. We thank you that your word is so densely packed with so much truth about the seriousness of our condition in sin, but the greatness of our Savior in Christ. The majesty of your grace that you have shown us. And we thank you that these scriptures all affirm that. But we thank you as well what we were able to detect in all of these passages is the centrality of your word to communicate your, your grace. Not only to the lost sinners who end up calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, but also how your word is the means of communicating your grace to us as believers. And so we ask as these next few moments we reflect on, on those truths, that you would drive home your word into our hearts so that we would bear fruit for you in righteousness. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. So friends, we're continuing on our series through kind of the Baptist Catechism after having finished our series on the Ten Commandments. And I thought we would just kind of continue through as a kind of consequence. Well, what do we do now after reading the Ten Commandments? And last week we saw the, uh, the importance of uh, the response, the proper response to the gospel of Christ. And we saw that last week. And then continuing on from that, uh, the Catechism, and we saw this last week in, in question number 90 in our catechism question. And it says, what doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? And let's say these together. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. Last week, I said, um, last week we focused on faith and repentance is what is required of us to escape the condition that we are in. And I said, but there was actually three things there. And I said, Lord willing, last week I said, Lord willing, if he um, doesn't return, 
um, we will talk about the third one. And so that's our topic this morning here is the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits, or you could even say the blessings, uh, the benefits of redemption, or you could say the blessings of salvation. So the question that kind of begins this morning is how, okay, this is the, the guiding question this morning, how does God dispense his grace to his people, to the elect? How does God do that? How does God dispense his grace to his elect? Of course, we just to be clear on what we mean by grace, of course, grace is the, the absolute undeserved favor of God towards sinful persons. And all of us are receiving God's grace to some extent. There's a, such a thing called common grace where the Lord has a, a kind of a common grace to all of humanity. That you, if you are an unbeliever and you're in the room right now and you're breathing, that is due to the common grace of God. On your life right now. And there will come a point where that grace will be no more. So there's a benefit that God gives to all human beings. This is referred to as his common grace. Great scriptural example for this would be Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, For God the Father makes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. Right? His common grace, that the sun comes up every morning and shines on people's fields. And he continues, And sends rain on the just and the unjust. So if you've got a field of crop, you have a wicked person's field and you have a righteous person's field, it's the same rain. That's his common grace to everybody. But then there's his special grace, and that is the grace that he has for his elect for salvation. And often we think of this grace as coming to us kind of initially in our salvation, when in reality... His grace comes to us in an ongoing way. So the question is, how does God dispense that to us in an ongoing way through all of life? And he does this through what's called the, the means of grace. The means of grace. Or the Latin expression of this would be uh, media, or media gratiae. I won't make you say it. But there's a definition right there on the screen. The means or the instruments that uh, God uses to convey grace to believers in an ongoing way through all of life. So that is what we mean by means of grace. God has given in this world means by which we can experience his grace. Now this is to be differently understood than uh, say like in Roman Catholicism. Now, Roman Catholicism would have uh, several, several uh, sacraments, seven of them. And let me actually see if I remember them here. Got them on the notes. Uh, seven sacraments, according to Roman Catholic theology, is baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, which is there, it means Thanksgiving. It's basically like what we would understand as the Lord's table, but it, they would understand it differently. The Eucharist, acts of penance, extreme unction, or 
last rites, the ordination of priesthood, and marriage. Those would be their seven, seven sacraments. When we talk about means of grace, however, as uh, Protestants or Reformed, we would understand it differently than, than, they, than the Catholics would. Let me quote Wayne Grudem here. He says, there's not only a difference in the lists given by Catholics and Protestants of, of what the means are, there's also a difference in fundamental meaning. Catholics view those, those seven things as a means of salvation that make people fit to receive justification for God, from God. Okay? You see how that works? The seven things that you do to kind of make you prepared to receive grace, uh, to receive your justification from God, which according to Catholic theology is not possible in this life. You hope your best bet is to get to purgatory and to be able to work it off. The Protestant view, though, when we say means of grace, we, we want to distinguish this from like the Catholic understanding. The Protestant understanding, and again quoting Rudum here, on the Protestant view, the means of grace are simply means of additional blessing within the Christian life and do not add to our fitness to receive justification from God. Catholics teach that the means of grace impart grace whether or not there is subjective faith on the part of the minister or the recipient. This would be the phrase ex opere operato. So meaning you don't need faith if you just do these things. They have power. They work by just working them and doing them. And we'll get to that here in the coming weeks, Lord willing. But the Protestants hold that God only imparts grace when there is faith on the part of the person administering or receiving the means. So, in under, so again, so the, the, the Catholic understanding of performing these sacraments as kind of a, quote, a means of salvation is that these are preparatory. They make you suitable. But for the Reformed understanding, these are the means that God gives us that we do in faith that he brings his blessing to us. You understand that distinction. So today I want to look at the means of grace, how God communicates his blessings, the blessings of salvation to us in a daily, in a daily way. What are the means of grace? Let me give you kind of the big, I'll call these the big five. Um, and here they are on the screen. Here's the big five. I'll give them to you all at once. God's word, baptism, the Lord's supper, prayer, and church discipline. Throughout the Reformed tradition, these, would, these are kind of the general five that appear on many uh, uh, people's lists of what are the means, what are the instruments that God gives us to do in faith that he now communicates grace to us. Louis Burkhoff, he, he lists three of them. His three are the true preaching of the word of God, the right administration of the sacraments, which that's actually two. The sacraments is, would be the term for both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then he says the faithful exercise of discipline. So he, he just doesn't have uh, prayer there. Let me give a, a list that like John MacArthur has in his systematic theology. He has God's word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, worship, fellowship, and church discipline. Wayne Grudem has these, the teaching of the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer for one another, worship, 
church discipline, giving, spiritual gifts, fellowship, evangelism, and personal ministry to households. So he has like 11 of them. And a lot of people include more, you know, there, there could be more that could be given here, but the main five that almost all across the board throughout all of the Reformed Protestant view would view these, these five. So our catechism question, question number 93, is what are the outward means whereby Christ communicated to us the, the benefits of redemption? So this is following on from the, what was introduced in question 90. And we saw 90, 91 and 92, faith and repentance last week. This is addressing the third one. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicated to us the benefits of redemption? Let's say this together. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicated to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all which means are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So here it lists... It lists the four of those. I had church discipline there because that's usually in other lists. But here in the catechism question, it lists these four. Now I want you to notice a couple of attributes about these outward ordinary means of grace. Is those first two words, outward and ordinary. How does God dispense his grace to us? Well, it's, it's actually quite Ordinary and it's outward. So let me let me kind of explain a little bit what we mean by outward. Outward could probably best be understood as actually real life things that we do in the world. Contra like a hyper spiritualism or like a hyper mysticism. Like if you're going to connect with God and receive blessings from him, it has to come in some sort of mystical way or through quietism or pietism. The, uh, the Anabaptists uh, tended to minimize the word of God as a means of grace and instead emphasize the inner voice of the spirit. That would be an example of kind of uh, the hyper-spiritualism that didn't really manifest, it seemed to manifest itself in tangible things in the world. These are outward. He gives us outward means that we can engage in. So if you think back to that list, for example, baptism. He gives us water. Now, there's some church traditions that say, well, doesn't the, doesn't the Bible speak about kind of like the being baptized in the spirit? And so they don't do water baptism because they think that that's not what is appropriate. They say it's actually just happens in a spiritual kind of way. There's churches just right, right around us that, that believe this, that you shouldn't do water baptism because it's just a spirit baptism. I would, I would counter that and say, no, he, he gives us actual water. Jesus went down into the water. He came up out of the water. Jesus' baptism. You think of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. They're traveling along the road, and he's asking questions about the scripture from Isaiah. And he's like, who's, who's this guy? Who's he talking about? And Philip goes, well, that's Jesus. That's the Messiah. 600 years earlier, they were, they were prophesying his coming. And he explains to him all of the gospel there, and they come along, traveling through the wilderness, and they come across a, a main river there that's on their journey from Jerusalem down back to, um, 
Egypt and Ethiopia where he's from. And he goes, hey, look, this is in the text. Hey, look, there's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? And it says they got down out of the chariot, they went into the water, and they came up out of the water. So God gives us, he gives us that to means and an instrument that, to communicate his grace to a believer, to mark the, the beginning of their, of their Christian life. More on that in a couple of weeks when we get to baptism. So it's outward. It deals with real tangible things. Same thing for the Lord's Supper. How, how can we communicate? How, how, what does God give us a tangible way of representing a spiritual reality that we get by faith? He actually gives us things to taste. Bread and wine. And notice, um, well, and this gets to the second one part here, is that it's, they're also ordinary. You get that they're outward now, but they're also ordinary. It's not a special kind of bread. Just bread. It's not a special wine that needs to be grown in a certain region of France. No, it's just the fruit of the vine. These are actually staples of society. How common is water? These are ordinary things. Isn't that beautiful? That some of the most uh, abundant and ordinary things, especially in that ancient world at that time, bread, wine, and water, and that God uses, if I could pick, what kind of instrument could I give people to communicate grace to them? He gives us ordinary, ordinary elements. So these are ordinary, as contrary to, again, extraordinary types of things. Or like pietism, or like what could also be seen in like the charismatic movement, or the new apostolic reformation, a hyper-spiritualization of Christianity. Nope, these are just ordinary things that we take in faith. I think it's a beautiful thing that God gives us. And it's not like the Roman Catholic Church, which adds so many of these other things like ordination to the priesthood. Well, how many people are ruled out from that as being a means of receiving God's means of salvation? Or marriage is a sacrament. That's a means of receiving God's salvation. Some of those are not available to some people. So these are ordinary things. Or even think of it like Islam, which has certain things that need to be done, like the pilgrimage to Mecca, for instance. Aren't you glad that the Lord didn't decide to say, and one of the means that I'm going to do to really communicate grace to believers is to make sure that they take a trip to Jerusalem? Right? I mean, how many, that's pretty cost prohibitive. And to say, wow, I am now locked out from receiving that means of grace. And instead, he makes it ordinary things that we can, that we can experience. Now, can God use other means? Yes. Our catechism, our, our confession statement, chapter 5, paragraph 3, says, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, or against them at his pleasure. Can God work in other ways? Sure. But what the scriptures make it clear is that God does use means, and he's chosen some for us that are outward and ordinary. Outward and ordinary means. 
And so today we're going to look at the first of those, and that is the word. The primary means that the Spirit of God uses in life of believers to grow believers, to grow them in their sanctification, to, to grow them in their relationship with Jesus Christ, is found in his word. Go back to the passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. At the end of chapter 1, we saw he was calling them to a life of holiness, to believers to a life of holiness. He reminds them that the work that God had done in them, how they were ransomed from feudal ways by the precious blood of Christ, and how they had come to this faith and this salvation through the preaching of the gospel. You go back a little bit earlier, he talks about this, um, this concerning the salvation that the prophets inquired about this throughout the scriptures, but it's now fulfilled in Christ and his sufferings. And so he says, hey, look, you guys, are, you guys are Christians now. You are changed. You are united to Jesus Christ. And so you live differently. Remember where you were, how the Lord has ransomed you. And then notice how he turns this at the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2. He says, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincerely brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How are they born again? What's the seed that caused the, the birth of new life in them? The living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes a passage from Isaiah about the, the living and abiding nature of this word. This word is eternal. It doesn't. It's not like the grass of the field. Look at what it says in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That abiding and living word that causes us to be born again lives forever. And then he says, and that word is the good news that was preached to you. So notice what he's saying here is he's telling these believers who had received the gospel, who had believed in the message that was preached to them, and he says, and guess what? You still need it. You still need it on an ongoing basis. That word is the gospel that was preached to you, and you've heard me say this before. I say the gospel leaks. It's like a bucket, and it, our minds are like kind of a bucket, and our souls are like a bucket, and the gospel kind of leaks out of our, our thinking. And all through the New Testament, you get example after example. They just want to remind you of the gospel, remind you where you were and what God has done for you and how he's brought you into this. And so remember the scriptures. And by the way, does he remember Isaiah? Oh, what about this? And then they just, they say over and over and over again. So he continues. Remember, there's no chapter and verse divisions in the original writings. It, he says, so put away, it's for us it's chapter 2, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you tasted that the Lord is good. In the context here, that that spiritual milk, he's saying that's the living and abiding word of God. That is the good news that was preached to you. 
He's saying, you act, so you like actually need to take that every day. Likewise, just glance again at the importance of the, the role of the word of God in the life of believers. Not just their initial salvation, but their ongoing work that God communicates to us through it. We saw in chapter, chapter 10, the righteousness. It's not based on the law, the righteousness that is based on faith. And then he quotes, I believe, from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 30. Where's this word? And he quotes in the passage there in Deuteronomy 30. says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven to go get, us, get that for us? To, that is to bring Christ down. That Paul adds that interpretive element. Or who will descend into the abyss? I love that picture. He's saying, you don't have to go across the seas, go up onto high mountain peaks or into valleys or caves to go and find the word of God. It's there. He says, you don't have to go to Mecca. He says, but what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's your heart. And what is that? The word of faith. Justification by faith in the gospel. The one that we proclaimed to you. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then notice what he says going on. He goes, okay, so, uh, so you have to call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. But how can you call on him whom you've not believed? And how can you believe in him whom you never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And he ends with, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We often think of this, this verse, I think for very many of us, we think of this, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, is a reference to initial salvation through faith. When one first believes, they hear the gospel and then they believe it. And you go, ah, faith comes from hearing. And then afterward, as they're growing in their faith, walking in their faith, they're now going, what other instrument or tool can I use to develop my faith? And we often think that that verse is just applying to initial faith. I would contend that this is applying to faith, to all of it. How is it that we would come, we would initially receive the, the blessings of salvation by faith? Well, by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, the gospel. Okay, well then how can I grow in my faith? How can God through my faith and what other instrument can he use to help me to grow in my faith? Let me tell you, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ is the means that which God uses to communicate his grace to us as his people. Publicly and privately. Publicly in the reading of the word. This is why we read, often read large passages of scripture. Why we preach the word. And privately too. Through our private reading of the scripture. Through the ordinary, ordinary use of reading. We were, I had you know, a meeting with some young men here, a couple, uh, for several weeks we've talked about um, 
uh, we've gone through our, our confessional statement and looked at some of uh, the things that we've, we've talked about these, the idea of uh, the scripture and how do we come to read the scripture? How do we interpret the scripture? Are there some unique, special sorts of rules when it comes to reading the Bible that are different than if you would read anything else? No, it's actually quite, quite the same. You would read the scripture like you would read everything else. Only caveat is that we would understand that we, there's, there's two authors, that there's a divine author behind all of it. But you don't have some special kind of mystical way of coming to the scripture that's different to read and understand it. We could have looked at other scripture passages, too, that point to this idea of how the role of scripture in our lives by which God communicates grace to us. To us. Ephesians chapter 6, it says that in our, in, as a part of our armor against the devil and his schemes in, in spiritual warfare, it, we have the word of God. And Jesus illustrated this for us as well when he was tempted in the wilderness, remember? When Satan kept to coming with a temptation and every single time Jesus goes back with what does the scripture say? What do the scriptures say? Indeed, Paul wrote to Timothy and he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The word of God is a means by which God communicates his blessings of redemption, the blessings of salvation, the benefit of redemption to us. And so it's through the scriptures that we come to this. And I invite you to turn to uh, two other passages. Maybe this is overkill. I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5. And keep your, we're going to bounce back and forth between those, so keep your finger at both, both places. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. I found this was a very fascinating passage, a parallel between Ephesians 5 and Colossians chapter 3. And we saw this several weeks ago when we did the fifth commandment on, um, of the Ten Commandments. Um, we, saw, we, we looked at a little bit of the parallels between what Paul writes in Ephesians and what Paul writes to the Colossians. And it's, uh, it's quite amazing how much these passages from Ephesians 5 into 6 and Colossians beginning in chapter 3 into 4 really mirror each other. Maybe you've noticed this before. And what, what's even more interesting is that both of these passages were written by the Apostle Paul. They, they could date this pretty accurately. M most people say 62 AD, sometime in that year. We know when he wrote it. Now, they don't know exactly what day Paul wrote like Ephesians 5 and 6, but I will tell you, I'm pretty confident that I can tell you what day Paul wrote Ephesians 5 and 6. Are you ready? Some people said it's popped up. I, I think that Paul wrote Ephesians 5 and 6 on the same day he wrote Colossians 3 and 4. That was not as a big wow as I thought you thought it would be. Okay. 
The reason why, there's so many parallels between these two, and I think it's quite fascinating. So uh, let's go through them, and I have a helpful chart here to, to kind of show you. Both passages begin with kind of an introductory command. Ephesians 5, verse 18, and Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, okay? And then I want you to kind of notice the pattern here. Notice the next verses after verse 18, um, uh, verse 19 in Ephesians 5, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, okay? Notice Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Okay? Ephesians uh, 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice the similarities here. How many of you, like, you, you needed to send, like, you just copied and pasted an old email and then just put it into the new email, right? Who, who among us is not guilty of doing that? Like, just kind of alleviate your workload. If, if the Apostle Paul could have just selected, copied, and pasted, he would have done it. You will see quite clearly uh, it's very similar. Notice what comes next. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives. And notice verse 25. Husbands. Notice Colossians 3.18, wives. Verse 19, husbands. What about Colossians chapter 6? Or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Notice verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children. What about Colossians 3.20? Children, obey your parents in everything, for this Pleases the Lord. Verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Notice Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. He addresses the bondservants. Colossians chapter 3, verses, verse 22. Bondservants are slaves. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Masters. Colossians 4, 1. Masters. Even more, go, go into uh, Ephesians chapter 6, go down to verse 21 in the final greetings. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Notice how, and so that means Tychicus is the carrier of Ephesians. He's the, the one delivering the letter to the Ephesians to the Ephesians. Notice how Colossians chapter 6 Verse uh, 7, or Colossians 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is the beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. Back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 22. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Colossians chapter 4, verse 8. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Verbatim. Verbatim. The same thing. And so I thought, boy, that's kind of redundant. Why did God put this all in here twice? But notice how they both, the commands begin. 
in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the primary commanding verse, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to this list that we just saw. And I remember becoming an early Christian going, wow, that's a cool verse, to be filled with the Spirit of God. And, and then I, I take a, a class later on, and I have a professor who says, and yeah, in the Greek, this is a command. It's in the imperative. And I'm like, wow, so we're, we're commanded, be filled with the Spirit. How do you do that? Do you know? Like, how do you, and I was like, this is really cool. And I walked away, and I get to my dorm room, and I'm like, oh, mm, try to, you know, like a, like a tree trying to force itself to have apples come out. Right? Have you ever gone like, okay, yeah, I want to be filled with spirits a command for me to do. How am I, well, if I'm commanded to do it, how do I do that? But notice how the Apostle Paul's instruction, the, the parallel instruction here, notice what it says. Before he gets to the songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, wives and husbands, children and fathers and slaves and masters and Tychicus and everything. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish. And friends, I don't think it's, I, I don't think this is any way inappropriate to say this. So many times I've approached being filled with the Spirit as a command is that something I have to work within myself to do. Instead of thinking, actually God has given us a means of grace by which His Spirit could be developed in us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do you want to be filled with the Spirit? Read the scriptures. Do you want to have God communicate his grace to you? He, he, receive blessing from you? Then, then go hear the word of God read out loud and proclaimed. Do you want to, this is kind of the famous meme, do you want to hear from God? Read the Bible. But I want to hear from God out loud. Well, read the Bible out loud. <laughs> Friends, the Word of God is the instrument that God has given us to communicate His blessings to us, to communicate His grace to us. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Oh, man, how many years I wish I'd have known to put those two together. So the word of God is precious for us in that regard. It's not just, the, the gospel's not just the means by which we become initiated into the Christian life. The, the word of God and the gospel become the instrument by which God grows us in our faith. And so we need to prioritize the centrality of this. And you, I was showing you the various lists of the various means of grace that di different people have had throughout you know, so the last several hundred years, and all of them share, and, um, and uh, what heads the list on every single one of them is the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word. I just earlier had said that famous passage that all Scripture is breathed out and is profitable for us to train us into righteousness, and the verses that immediately follow that Paul charges Timothy, his protege, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ who is judge of the living and dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
to preach the word. Central. What should churches be about? What's the primary thing that churches should be about? The word. The preaching of the word. To proclaim the whole truth of scripture. I just marvel at churches that like, you know, even big, large churches that have all of these fantastic programs and stuff like that, and then are un unhitching themselves from it, from the very word. That's the central thing in the life of the church, the central thing that churches should have. Proclaiming the whole truth of Scripture. I want to end with a story I, I, I saw this week on, on Twitter. Janet asked me, is it you anything good on there? I'm like, mostly not. Uh, but I found something good this week I thought was great. It's from a pastor who tells this story, and I think it's fascinating. And, and I saw in here something a little slightly different than I think what he was conveying in the story, but it fits with our purposes this morning. <clears throat> this guy by the name Michael Clary, C-L-A-R-Y. Quote, I learned an important ministry lesson years ago from an unbeliever I was trying to evangelize. I was on staff with Crew, which is the campus, the, the new name for campus, Crusade for Christ. And this unbeliever, he says, was a brilliant and thoughtful student. Over the next few years, I shared the gospel with him many times, times answering objections and using all the tools to answer his more complicated moral, philosophical, and theological objections, I took him to meet one of my theology professors at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Despite all this, he could never commit to Christ. He was a classic, quote, always learning but never arriving at church kind of guy. Eventually, I moved away to plant a church and I continued to pray that someday he would come to faith. Fast forward a few years, he calls me out of nowhere to tell me he'd become a Christian. I also spoke to his new wife, who was also a solid believer. Not only that, but he had begun taking seminary courses to explore church planting. I was floored. What finally broke through? What book? What apologist? or intellectual, finally convinced him. So I asked him. Here was his answer. Someone invited him to a church service, and the preacher preached about hell and eternal judgment. It scared the crap out of him. I could say that because it's in the tweet. I'm quoting it. I'm just being intellectually you know, <laughs> accurate here or whatever. It scared the crap out of him. And he surrendered to Christ at that moment. Like he legit got saved. Radical, immediate conversion. Looking back, I'd spent the better part of four years appealing to his intellect, talking philosophy and theology. I wanted to prove to him how intellectually satisfying and philosophically robust Christianity is. All that is well and good, but I missed the one thing he needed most. He needed to know what many Christians want to avoid talking about with unbelievers. He needed to know 
He needed what I was afraid to mention because I was embarrassed. He needed to know about judgment and hell, the unpleasant doctrines that demonstrate, by contrast, the beauty of the cross. He gave me a huge heart to, a part to play. God gave me a, a huge part to play in his conversion, for which I am grateful. But the honor of seeing him cross the finish line went to another man who was faithful in an area where I had failed. I'd spent years showing him a respectable Christianity, which kept him comfortable in his unbelief. In Scripture, however... We learn that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. One plain spoken sermon that clearly laid out God's wrath against sin and the grace of the cross had more power than all my years of trying to reach him by the human means of appealing to his intellect. In other words, the foolish of God, foolishness of God is wiser than men. What a great story, isn't it? The power that the scripture has, the gospel as it's proclaimed in the scripture, the power of it proclaimed in a, in a worship service. Now, there's other things that are, we would understand that, that, that the, the word of God is an instrument and it's a means by which God uses, but also the Spirit of God needs to work. There's, there's clearly something maybe that was missing under here, is that sometimes people are just, they have a veil over their eyes. You can tell them all the information. They can know all the details about all, all of the gospel, but they just have a veil over their eyes that cannot see it, that has to be removed by the Spirit of God and regenerated hearts. That's true, too. But... But God still uses the word, and not just for initial faith, but in our ongoing faith. For faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of God, which is a means by which God uses to communicate his grace to us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And oh, how... <clears throat> How often it is when we assess the, the darker moments of our walk with you, where we struggle and fail, we don't sense your nearness or presence, and how often that that is a, a symptom of our distance from your word. God, help us to draw more into your word and your scriptures that we would understand it as not just something that we need to study or to learn or to do theology, but this is, it really truly is a means by which you impart your grace to us. And we praise you and thank you for that word. So help us to be diligent, lovers of your book, because we know it's more than just a book. We know it's more than just human authors that wrote long ago, that it is the very living and active word of God. It's the sword of the spirit. It, it is breathed out by you. And so help us to be under it as we hear it, as we read it privately, but as we hear it read and preached to us. And God, that you would use it to change us and grow us in our faith. We ask you to do this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said.
Amen and amen. Friends, we get to come to the next, uh, another means of grace, and that is the Lord's table. The Lord gave us a tangible expression, an outward and ordinary means by which we could be reminded of the gospel, the death of Jesus Christ for us. And so for us as believers, we come to this table. If you are not a believer, no judgment if you stay at your seat. But for those of us who claim Jesus as our Savior, we come to this table with joy and gratitude because we are nourished as, as the same way that this would nourish in our bodies and refresh our spirits. So the gospel nourishes our hearts and refreshes our souls. And so let's pray for this and then invite you to come. Lord, we thank you for this fruit of the vine and the bread that you have given to us to not only memorialize the work of Jesus Christ and his broken body and his shed blood, but that this becomes a means whereby where we come in faith to receive it, you do indeed nourish us with the truth of the gospel. And so we ask you to do that now as we come to your table with gratitude and joy. And it's in Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen.